In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we talk about how to live and navigate our life in light of our Catholic faith. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I am the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute of Catechesis and Evangelization in the Diocese of Tyler. Uh, this episode, we're welcoming Paul Sens, who works at Ignatius Press. Uh, he is in charge of uh, the religious education uh, products and then also works with the Pew Missile there. But the reason that we brought Paul on today is because he's the author of uh, a new book on Fatima, uh, it is uh, 100 Questions and Answers uh, about the Fatima Apparitions. What's the official title, Paul? I always forget the official title yeah. of it. You had it almost, almost on the nose. It's uh, Fatima, colon, 100 Questions and Answers about the Marian Apparitions. Okay. All right. I, I was close. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this is a really well-timed book. Um, it, th there's, a, there's a new film out. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet, uh, Paul and I both uh, have seen it and, and talked a little bit about it before we went on air. Uh, I think it's really great, uh, and the book is a really good resource for you if, you know, you see the film and you know nothing other than what you've seen in the film and you want to find out more, um, certainly this is a great book. But even if, you know, you're not interested in the film, uh, or even if you do know something about Fatima, I myself have written a, a fair amount about it, and I, I think it's a really fantastic book. So uh, we wanted to just take a, a chance to talk with Paul um, about a, a few big themes in the book. And um, yeah, I think it'll be something beneficial to, to anyone, but especially if you're interested in apparitions and in Marian apparitions generally. So um, Paul, I know we had a few questions lined up that we, we planned on talking about, but, but I wanted to want to know if I could ask you really briefly about how did the book come about? Um, what, what was the timeline like? I noticed at the end, you said it was a, a whirlwind process. So tell us a little bit about that. That was a really interesting and, frankly, providential uh, series of events. So the film that you mentioned was originally slated to come out in April of this year. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was because of COVID or what, the release date was pushed back from April to August, the 14th, I think, and then, and then pushed back again to the 28th, which is when it ultimately came out. And so when that was pushed back, the, some of the folks at Ignatius reached out to me and they said, hey, we know you. We, we know you're a, you're a writer who can do things quickly and well. <laughs> so we've got this idea for a project. This movie's coming out in a few months. And we'd love to provide a resource for people who are going to be looking for more information about Fatima. You know, they say we, that, that this movie is going to be broadly playing. There's going to be a lot of people who are, who are going to be looking for more information. So do you think you could turn this book around for us? And I jumped at the opportunity because I've, I've had a great devotion to Our Lady since before I can remember. 
you know, I, I grew up at a, a Marian parish and uh, I was taught at a, the, the, the parochial school there by a Marian order of nuns. And just oh, in, wow. in, my, in my family, it was, it was just a very, a very uh, uh, Mar- Marian focused uh, spirituality was, was cultivated in me, you know, so, and I, I just always had a great devotion to Our Lady and an interest in Fatima. So I jumped at the opportunity and I researched and wrote the book. I mean, it's a short book. I realized sure. that, but, <laughs> but I researched and wrote the book in uh, a little less than a month. So awesome. It, yeah, it was, it was, it was a whirlwind for sure. Yeah. That's good. When I, when I saw that toward, toward the end of the book, I thought, man, you know, um, I, I wrote a, a small book about, about the Fatima prayer, just about the Oh My Jesus prayer. And it wasn't quite that compressive a timeline, but it was also a very fast thing. Uh, just kind of came out of nowhere. Um, yeah. So that's <laughs> really interesting. Uh, we'll have to, uh, the next time we see each other in person, uh, talk more about what that, what that was like, because I have some yeah. idea. Um, that's great. So uh, in the book, what Paul does, he gives, it's, as it says, there's 100 questions and answers. Uh, we obviously can't go through all of them, although I think most of them are very interesting. I read... I think the entire book, and it's really readable. Uh, what, what we wanted to do is today is just highlight a few big themes. And what, what I want to start with, uh, Paul, if you can tell us, I think a lot of people, at least if you've seen the movie, you know, it, it looks like the apparitions at Fatima start in 1917 in May, and then they end in October. Uh, but there are some other apparitions that happen in the lives of the children how important in your mind are those apparitions and how do they connect to the famous ones of 1917? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So as you say, in May of 1917 was the first time Our Lady appeared to the children, these three shepherd children. About a year before, uh, they were, the children were visited three times by an angel who identified himself as the angel of peace or the angel of Portugal. Now, what we know about these apparitions from, from Lucia, you know, the oldest of the children, from her memoirs that she wrote years later. And by that time, she said she couldn't remember the exact dates, but it was, but it was mm-hmm. roughly kind of late spring, early summer, and then, you know, midsummer, and then kind of late September, early October were these three, these three apparitions of the angel in 1916. Um, the, I think the, these apparitions did a great job of preparing the children for what was to come the following year when Our Lady visited them, but not explicitly. I mean, the angel didn't say, as far as Lucia told us, right. the angel didn't say to them anything like, oh, by the way, next year you will be visited by the mother of our Lord or anything like that. It was, <laughs> he, yeah, he, he appeared to them and he, he, each time he prayed with them, you know, they would, they would drop, drop to their knees together and, and pray. Um, but I think the, the primary way, or maybe two things that he did to prepare them for what was to come. Number one, just, just preparing their, their uh, psyches for an apparition, you know, I mean, I mean, this is, uh, this is something that I think a lot of us, if we had some kind of visitation from, from uh, any saint or, or from our Lord or something like that, 
we wouldn't necessarily be ready for it. We wouldn't know how to react. <laughs> you know right. I mean? um, so in that sense, I prepared them just, just to kind of be on the lookout for, for an apparition or, or, or how to react, even though I don't know if any, anything could properly prepare you for that. But also <laughs> the, the message of this angel set the tone for Our Lady's message the following year, which was yeah. primarily the importance of conversion, conversion away from sin, making reparation for sin. And of course, uh, accepting the, accepting the sufferings that we face and taking on sacrifices and offering that up for the conversion of sinners and the reparation of sins. That that's kind of the chief message of our lady of Fatima. And that was also kind of the message of this angel that was appearing to them the the year before that. I find interesting those early apparitions that, I mean, you have, as Lucia describes it, they're pretty good kids, her and her cousins. They're not, you know, troublemakers or they're not like uh, skeptics or anything. Uh, but they're but they're not super super good at uh, praying. Uh, so you know one of the things and you recounted in the book and, and anybody who knows about Fatima is so funny to read that they would go into the fields and they would they were they're going to pray the rosary, but they would just say like announce, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, yeah. Hail Mary, right? And they could yeah. get through the rosary even faster than, uh, you know, some of our auctioneers who pray it super, super quickly. Yeah. Um, and they learn after these initial, you know, encounters with the angel of peace that like, you know, we better really pray like a real rosary, um, you know, and that, that prepares them, I think, and gives them a greater spiritual maturity so that when finally Mary comes to visit them, right, they've, they've really entered into a, a deeper form of discipleship. Um, what, in those, in those 1917 apparitions, uh, what do you think is like the most extraordinary thing that they experience? In the, the 1917? I'm sorry, not the, the, the early ones, yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say the most extraordinary thing was probably when... Uh, the children uh, received communion from the angel. So one of, one of the times that he appeared to them, he held in his hands uh, a chalice with a, a host above it, dripping blood into the, into the chalice. And uh, now by, by this time, uh, Lucia had received her first communion. She actually received it at a younger age than normal. Right. She, she attended, uh, her mother taught you know, the catechism classes of the church and Lucia would go with her and she was just a sponge for it, you know, and she, and she really, she really got it. And she, she received permission to receive her first Holy communion at a younger age than was typical. Um, and so she had, she had already received by this point, but Francisco and Jacinta, her cousins had not. Okay? And the angel gave the host to Lucia and Francisco and Jacinta received from the chalice, uh, which I think, I think that's just incredible. What, when you think about that, that this yeah. angel brought Holy communion from heaven right. to, to these children. And for Francisco and Jacinta, that was their first communion. Yeah. With this, um, <laughs> you know, this, this <laughs> heavenly communion brought by the angel. I just think that's incredible. Yeah. 
when I was reading, when I read Lucia's memoirs and, and I, I saw the information about those early apparitions, I was completely blown away. And mm. I think of the Roman canon, like, the, you know, the angel will take this sacrifice from your altar here and bring it to the altar in heaven. Like we pray that in the, in the Roman canon. This is like the opposite direction. <laughs> this is coming from the altar on heaven down to these children. Uh, but then also, I mean, if you know about the age of communion in the early 20th century, it was, it was creeping up. First communion ages were going up and up and up till quam singulari. Uh, Paul, uh, Pius X tried to kind of bring things back down to, to, to around the age of reason. But Lucia, like you said, was given an extraordinary grace to receive her communion early. A visiting priest yeah. said, I'll take the blame for it, right, if, if something yeah. goes wrong. But I think she's ready. Her pastor wasn't willing. Yeah. Um, but the, the other thing about it is, for, for Jacinta and Francisco to receive from the chalice. I mean, it's an extraordinarily rare thing for people to receive from the chalice uh, yeah. back then, right? Uh, point, yeah. Almost unheard of. Um, and maybe one of the things that factors into this, the whole apparitions at Fatima is you have the youth and the innocence of these children that like they wouldn't know that they should be afraid or feel like, oh, I, I shouldn't be doing this. Um, right. And they're just they're just so so willing to trust God. Uh, I think that that that's one of the the fascinating things about it is they're getting to receive the Eucharist from an angel, and and then also knowing that you know they don't follow that up with like the next Sunday, sh like demanding that hey I've already received my first communion. And maybe on the one hand because you know, who's going to believe them that an angel gave them communion, yeah. uh, but. I, I still think it's it's remarkable that they didn't at least try. I mean, you don't have any we don't have any indication that like they were bitter about this or angry. Even after the the 1917 apparitions, and there's a a miracle with so many people there in October, mm -hmm. and they're at the heart of it, and they they don't try and get special treatment for themselves. And there's something just really really remarkable and beautiful about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great point, and uh, I think it's inter interesting too that they all along the children had had this even through as you say through the end of the 1917 apparitions, the children just had this humility about yeah. them, um, and I mean part of it was that they they faced some humbling some some humbling events, you know, um, like for example that. The, the, the first apparition in May, they're by themselves, of course, but then each month, an ever-increasing crowd joined them at the apparition site. I think by July, there were around 4,000 people. And then by October, there's that massive crowd of around 70,000. You know, so, I mean, there was just, there were, there were, when these crowds were not just uh, uh, supporters, you know, there were skeptics. There were people who were there specifically to mock them and to mock the crowds. There were people who who, who didn't believe and wanted to to uh, observe the, the the heartbreak of the people and the disappointment of the people when nothing happened that kind of thing but then in August you know the the government swoops in and kidnaps the children yeah. and imprisons them for two nights you know this is they they, 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 they missed they, the 13th that's a that's a that's a big one yeah yeah they they, they were imprisoned for the 13th so our lady came back on the 19th instead. Um, um, but I mean, this, this is just some incredibly humbling 
experiences. They faced a lot of opposition, which probably helped them stay kind of grounded. You know, they, yeah. they, they never really doubted. Well, there, there was some doubt early on when um, their, their parish priest was kind of trying to, to temper their expectations, you know, saying a lot, a lot of people think this is a hoax. A lot of people think you're playing a prank. Even if you're not, keep in mind that you might be being deceived. You know, this might be some kind of a nefarious agent uh, who's deceiving you. And then and Lucia was kind of racked with anxiety about that for, for some time. But Right. Well, and but, Lucia, but, right, for her, her family's unwilling, especially her mother's, mother, yeah. you know, hesitation to believe her and, and continually, you know, accusing her of, of making things up. That seems to me to have been a, a that, that must have been probably an extremely difficult part of, of the whole experience for her. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not that her mother wasn't faithful or wasn't Catholic. I mean, she wanted her to receive her communion when she was younger. And, you know, she told yeah. her uh, to prepare her heart for Jesus and for Jesus alone, you know, uh, when she was mm -hmm. going to make her communion. It's this beautiful recounting of, of Lucia's first communion in, in the memoirs that has a profound impact on her. She says for the rest of her life, she could hear her mother saying those words, keep your heart pure for Jesus alone every time she received her communion. Yeah. Um, so, she, so they didn't have an altogether terrible relationship, but she just wasn't willing to go along with these apparitions being a supernatural event. Yeah. Well, there's two, two things come to mind about that. Uh, I talk about this a little bit in the book, but for one thing, Portugal had been for centuries, this profoundly Catholic nation to the point that the, that the Kings of Portugal traditionally did not wear crowns because they said that's the sole right of Mary as, as queen. She is the crown wearer. We don't wear crowns. And there was this profoundly Catholic sensibility to the, you know, just within the fabric of the country. But about a decade before these apparitions, the monarchy was overthrown and this atheistic Masonic government steps in and immediately starts instituting these anti-Catholic laws, anti-clerical laws, you had government officials bragging, saying, because of these measures, these steps we're taking, within two generations, the church will be gone from Portugal. You know, they were, they were explicitly yeah. trying to crush the church. But in these rural areas like Fatima, the faith was able to, people were able to continue living their faith. You know, they, they, yes, the laws were in place and, the, and, and in the, the city centers, they were, secularism was kind of taking over. But in these far-flung places, it didn't touch them as much. And so a lot of the townspeople were very anxious about the, these supposed apparitions, you know, and were kind of hesitant to believe them. Maybe even, maybe even part of them might've been hoping it was a hoax that they could then put a stop to in order to prevent that government attention. You know, they didn't want a spotlight on them. They said, this is a hoax. You're playing a prank, knock it off. You know, we want right. to be able to keep living our faith here. Um, and, the, and the other thing is, I mean, by this point, these people would have been at least somewhat familiar with some other famous Marian apparitions, you know, maybe like Guadalupe and Lourdes, at least. Right. They, 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 they would have been maybe somewhat familiar with them. So then they probably would have thought, but that doesn't happen here. This isn't real. That doesn't happen here. That happens at Tepeyac. That happens in Lourdes. That happens elsewhere. That doesn't mm -hmm. happen in Fatima, so these children must be making it up, you know. So yeah, it was, 
and I kind of see that in her mother too, where it was her devotion to her faith. Oh, I see what you're saying. Skepticism. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Which is, which is a little bit ironic because I mean, it's not like, you know, Tepeyac was some really important place. <laughs> right. or Juan Diego was this really super important guy or, mm. or the same thing with Bernadette and Lourdes. Uh, it reminds me of a line from Fulton Sheen uh, in his Life of Christ, uh, which I know Ignatius publishes a beautiful edition of. Um, he has this line that uh, Christ was found, or divinity is always found where it is least expected. And he kind of like, he like, this is this refrain in one of the opening chapters of that book. And, and maybe apparitions are found where, where, where we should least expect them too. Right. <laughs> Yeah. All right, so these early apparitions, um, you know, prepare them for the 1917 ones. Um, in the 1917 apparitions, uh, a lot of people talk about the, the secrets of Fatima as, a, as though it's plural. Um, but Lucia describes it more as, as a single secret with three parts, right? Yeah, um, it, it really was sort of a, um, yeah, maybe chapter one, two, three, uh, um, Although, although of course, the third was more uh, mysterious, <laughs> more, right. more more symbolic and hard to understand. But yeah, I like the way that you um, you outline in the book the timeline of Lucia um, writing about the secret and also releasing the parts and the way that she did that. I've um, man, I wish I would have had that that simple timeline available when I was supposed to do some writing on Fatima. Um, can you kind of walk through, um, you know, you don't have to go through all the details, but how does it go from being, she, the experiences in 1917, right? Are they, are they told when to tell it and how does it eventually come out? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So like you say, there, there's this kind of these three, let's say these three parts of the secret. Um, in July of 1917 is when they, when they experienced these visions, um, the, so the, fir the first, just to briefly recap, the first part is this terrible um, vision of souls and torment in hell. It's this ter terrible and terrifying vision. The second is Our Lady explaining to them that if the world does not change its ways and convert away from sin and make reparation for sins, then the errors of Russia will spread throughout the world and cause, and cause pain and strife. And uh, the First World War, which was raging, she said, this war will end soon, but if these things are not done, a worse war will break out during the pontificate of Pius XI. And of course, there was no Pius XI at the time. Right. It was Benedict XV. Pius XI would come next, and the Second World War would indeed break out during his pontificate. And the third secret was the famous kind of an apocalyptic vision mm -hmm. of the bishop and white, you know, going through this um, ruined city along with other bishops and, and clergy ascending a hill, going through this ruined city with death and destruction surrounding them and then being killed by soldiers. Right. Um, so this sort of a highly symbolic apocalyptic sort of vision. Now, of course, this was a vision that children experienced the all of the people who had joined them at the apparition site all they could see was the children and their and their reactions but but the people there report that they could see that something was happening they could see the reactions on the children's faces 
that something was affecting them profoundly, but of course, no one knew what it was. And, oh, about 20, 25, a little less than 25 years later, the bishop of the area asked Lucia to tell the world more about Jacinta specifically. And she thought to herself, well, in order to really tell the world about Jacinta and to explain her heart and how she was right. affected by these apparitions, I've got to talk about the secrets because or the first two, at least because those affected her so much. She, yeah, she always she, said she that says she was the most affected by that exactly. vision of hell. Right. And was this, was this connected with like the beginning of her canonization cause or, or was it just a, an inquiry that the Bishop wanted to, to initiate? That's a good question. I think I can't, I can't recall now if, if it was related to a cause for canonization. I don't think, I think that was a later development, Okay, but I could be wrong. But, but I know that the, the, the Bishop of, of um, the diocese that covers Fatima, that includes Fatima, well, he was, he was very interested in the apparitions and believed in them and wanted and kind of wanted to tell the world about the apparitions and the children. Okay. And he, and he was particularly interested in Jacinta and how she was affected by it. So this was in the, uh, 1940, I think, or 41. Uh, Lucia wrote about Jacinta, including the first and second parts of the secret. Because she had to, to, to kind of communicate how they had affected Jacinta and what had happened to her over the, over the rest of her short life. A few years later, oh, and I, and I should say, as part of that, she prayed and tried to discern if it was an appropriate time to reveal those first two parts of the secret. You know, mm -hmm. these, these were private revelation. These were these personal visions. And so she asked Our Lady through prayer if this, if this would be appropriate. You know, can I reveal these parts of the secret? And she discerned that it was. So she, so she did so. The third secret, the third part of the secret, of just a few years later, she wrote it out, put it in a sealed envelope, and gave it to the bishop for safekeeping. You know, and she she even gave instructions about about who was to open it and when. Um, but it was basically it was basically out of her hands. You know, this is I've written it out. It's right. sealed. It's still secret. And now it's up to you to to determine what to do with it. And he kept it sealed. And eventually, uh, just not terribly long later, maybe 10 years or so later, he sent it to, uh, to the Vatican, to the, the, what was then called the Holy Office for safekeeping there. And several times over the, over the following 40 or so years, popes and um, maybe a handful of you know, advisors opened the secret, read it, and said, now's not the time. You know, for whatever reason, we don't know. Yeah. He said, yeah. now is not the time to reveal this. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting was in 1960, Pope uh, St. John XXIII read the secret with a couple of his advisors. <clears throat> and it was known that he was going to be reading it. So there was this great expectation because people, by this point, the apparitions were very well known. Right. You know, Pius Twelfth. One of his kind of nicknames is is uh, the Pope of Fatima because mm -hmm. he was such a great supporter of it, you know, and it had become very popularized. And the secrets were 
pretty well known too. So people were just dying to know about this third secret. They said, okay, the Pope's going to read the third secret and then he's going to tell us what it is. And the, the Holy See put out a, a, a press release afterwards that said, yes, he read it. He is not going to reveal it at this time. And then it said something to the effect of, there's a good chance it will never be revealed. <laughs> wow. Like. They I remember when it came out in 2000, uh, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what Fatima was at all. Yeah. Um, but my dad read in the paper or maybe there was in like our, our diocesan Catholic newspaper or something um, that this, the third secret had been revealed. And he told me, man, when I grew up as a kid in Mexico, boy, everybody was always talking about when's this third secret coming out. Um, And he was born in 1957. So it would have been, you know, uh, during his life when he was a kid that there was uh, this initial discussion about this third part. Um, But I mean, this is another, another example of the stunning humility. I mean, can you imagine to having that vision and not only uh, not you know, uh, broadcasting it, but even after you've written it and given it to, to the Pope, like not, she never like goes and bugs the Pope. She's alive for a really long time and she just lets them do whatever it is they're going to do with it. Yeah. And it's like now, and she even says, what does it mean? <laughs> I don't know. That's for the Pope to figure out. I just told yeah. him what the vision is, what it means. Uh, you know, I don't know. That's yeah. stunning. I can't, I can't imagine uh, and maybe that's why I'll, I'll never witness an apparition. Like I can't imagine that kind of humility to yeah. just uh, say, "Here, uh, here's here's what it is," and uh, that's it. I'm not saying anything more about it. Yeah, and then in the lead up to when they when they ultimately did release it in in 2000, uh, May 13th of 2000, the anniversary of the first apparition, which was the beatification of Francisco and Jacinta. Um, in the lead up to that, preparing to release it. Archbishop, then Archbishop Bertone and Cardinal Ratzinger from the, from the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, um, met with her. I think, I think Archbishop Bertone met with her kind of extensively to, to discuss the apparitions, and, but in particular, the third secret. Yeah. And Cardinal Ratzinger prepared this, this fantastic theological commentary that, on the third secret that, that was released along with the text right. of the secret. And they, you know, they discussed it with her and she kind of gave her assent. Although, as you said, she kind of said, no, it's above my pay grade, but, but <laughs> yes, that, this is kind of how we understood it as well. Um, and I just, I just think that's incredible. And John Paul II, when, when, after the attempt on his life on May 13th, yeah. 1981, uh, when he was recovering in the hospital, he asked for the third secret to be brought to him. And he read it right. for the first time and presumably saw as so many others have saw himself uh, in that bishop and white who was killed and he to his dying day firmly believed that our lady had physically intervened and adjusted the path of the bullets right to save his life yeah i think uh he's he, he uses this line like one hand guided the the gun but another guided the bullet or something like that yeah, something like uh that. but that's that's the, the phrase um yeah, I know what I thought was interesting when I was reading your book, um, specifically with this third secret or third part of the secret question, you know, is it's interesting to me that he had, that was the first time he read it was when he was in the hospital after being shot. Yes. That's fascinating to me that he would have that intuition. And I get, well, I get, it was May 13th, right? So it's not like, you know, he just got shot and said, let me read that secret from Fatima. Um, but that he hadn't read it prior to that. 
and still immediately was like, I need to see this. Um, yeah. There's there are a lot of people that that will insist that you know John Paul II has nothing to do with that third part of the secret. Um, I don't know if you care to to, to go into to, to that argument or not, but how if if you had to answer that, what what would you say? Because um, I've got thoughts on it, but I'm I'm curious to hear what you would say. Because um, I've heard this from people doing talks in parishes, retreats, yeah. that sort of thing. Someone you know it. Will will ask that question or, or make that claim. What? How would you respond to that? Well, because of the whirlwind nature of the book, uh, and also that that it's that it's kind of a more uh, um, introduction to to the events. I didn't have a chance to dive into a lot of the um, counter arguments for for some right. of these controversial matters. But what I would say is. If it's not about John Paul II, it's an awfully big coincidence. You know, <laughs> it's just—I mean, I—I I, I have a—I have a much harder time believing that he is not involved, the one involved in the in the secret, than that he is. I mean, it just—it just seems—it just seems too—it seems too perfect and too providential and too beautiful of a of a statement about. Our Lady's love for, love for us, and and the fact that he was almost killed on May thirteenth. Right, his life was spared, and he went on to be pope for twenty four more years, accomplishing so much, including the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart. Right, the role he played in the fall of the Soviet Union, and of course, so much, so much else. I, it's just, I'd have a very hard time believing that. Yeah, I, I have a similar view, and and you know, John or. Um, Benedict XVI, Cardinal Ratzinger, in that theological note on the third part of the secret, he says that, you know, this revelation isn't, uh, you know, a, uh, a picture book guide to history. Right. Uh, right. It's mystical and it's symbolic. And one of the points he makes in there that's the, that I constantly, we've, we've come back to many times, is this humility and openness of, of, of a simple child to receive a vision like that and, and not think, okay, now I have the key to unlock history um, but rather yeah. to try and see the deeper purpose of it. And he says, he, Ratzinger says, this maybe is one of the reasons why apparitions often happen to simple and uneducated people is because they're willing to just receive it. And they yeah. don't have, they don't go through this, you know, critical discussion of it, but they say, here, here's what I've received and I'll pass it on. And yeah. uh, I think that's, um, that's remarkable. Okay, um, let's move into uh, an, a different direction now. Um, these things happened, in, you know, 100 years ago, 102, three years ago, I guess now. Um, what's the value? Uh, what, 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 is, what do you think is the, the enduring value of knowing about these apparitions? I mean, the book that you've written is fantastic. Um, it gives people a really good overview and outlines things like in a re remarkable way. I'm, I'm re and I sincerely mean that I, I wish I could have had that avail available to me when I was trying to do some of my own work on it. Um, but beyond just learning about these events that happened a while ago, why, why should we pay attention or, or care about it? I think the, the enduring value comes from the message of Our Lady. You know, it's the, all, all the little aspects of the apparitions are interesting, very interesting. 
but I think, and I think this is what she would want, but keeps these apparitions important. What, what makes them enduringly important to us is the message of converting away from sin, mm-hmm. you know, cha- changing your ways and not just, not just stop sinning, but also make up for it, you know, and, and also not just our own personal sin, but, right. but the, the children, the children were given, were, were, it was made very clear to them that our actions, our sacrifices, our sufferings, we can offer those up, not just in reparation for our own sins, but for the sins of others yeah. and, and for, for the sake of the conversion of those sinners. That's something that we talked about the, the that first part of the secret uh, affecting Jacinta so much when she saw these souls in torment in hell. After that moment, she was single-minded in her, in her desire to save souls from that fate. You know, right. some, some people ask, and I, I, this is one of the questions in the book, why would such a terrifying vision be given to these young children? You know, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that scar them? Wouldn't that have this terrible psychological effect on them? Well, we know that it wasn't to scare the kids straight because the, in the first apparition in, in May of that year, when this lady said, I come from heaven, you know, they, they didn't know who she was until October. <laughs> you know, they right. just, just knew she was from heaven. Um, and they said, well, you're from heaven. Will we go to heaven too? And she said, yes, all three of you will go to heaven. Lucia, you will have to wait some time, but just yeah. Francisco will come sooner, but you will all go to heaven. So they didn't need to be scared straight. They knew they were going to heaven. They, they knew they were leading these, these lives and they, they were told what was, what was going to happen ultimately. So it wasn't for their sake. It was, it was for the sake of the message and for them to get it, for them to understand it that much more profoundly so that they could communicate that to the rest of the world. And it, and I mean, and it, it worked, you know, they, they understood it so well. And they, like I said, they were single-minded in that, in that pursuit after that. And I think that's the most enduring part of this message is, is Mary is our mother. And like a good mother, she wants to take care of us. She wants to, she wants what's best for us. And that is, right relationship with God. She wants to lead us to her son above all else. And she wants us to be right with God. And that's, and that's how it can be done. Yeah, that's excellent. Now I think uh, also the enduring value is, is, is precisely the same thing. And, and the, the importance of prayer and praying the rosary and the way that that transforms the the children's lives. Um, um, And, and again, the humility that they have, knowing they're going to go to heaven, they're right. still worried about sin. I think it's it's easy for us to imagine, or you know, and this is probably why Mary's never going to tell me I'm going to heaven in advance. I I think my my inclination, especially as a kid, if you said you're going to heaven, be like, oh great, like in Forrest Gump, but one less thing to worry about, you know, then then I can just kind of do whatever I need to, uh, whatever I feel like, because I'm going to heaven. And that was not at all the impact it had on them, but then they became even more concerned about the reality and danger of sin in the world, precisely not for themselves, but for others. Uh, going, going days with, you know, taking their food 
Uh, there's there's the stories in Lucia's memoirs about them saying, well, we should fast. Let's feed our lunch that we brought with us to our to to the sheep. Let them eat it, and then they realize there are poor people along their route to the to the pasture that don't have yeah. food. So maybe instead of feeding the sheep, we could we can give it to these uh, to these poor people. Um, yeah, and I guess I mean one last thing maybe, and then we better wrap up here before before we're here for too terribly long. But uh, and we talked a little bit about this before we went on 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 air. How difficult it must have been for Lucia to have these just trans transformational mystical encounters with the angel of peace, receiving the Eucharist directly from heaven, uh, and then the Marian apparitions throughout 1917. And then she has ongoing apparitions for the rest of her life, not like, you know, frequently, but there are many more of them that she records in her memoirs as yeah. she goes into the convent and continues her life of, uh, how strange and difficult and trying that must have been to live such a long life, an ordinary life, after that extraordinary, you know, young age. Um, I don't know if you have maybe a couple thoughts about that. Yeah, it must have been. Well, on the one hand, I, 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 I want to say it must have been difficult to live an ordinary life after that. But I, but I think I think I'm going to correct myself there and say it was probably a relief. You know, they, mm. they, they, I mean, they were, they were just regular kids from a rural town, you know, raising their sheep and everything. <laughs> and these incredible things happened to them. And I think they probably appreciated going back to relative anonymity. You know, Lucia probably liked the cloister after that, because I mean, even during the apparitions in 1917, as they were going on, even their homes were bombarded by, people coming to them asking, you know, would you please ask the lady for this favor? Would you please pray for me? Would you please this and that? Yeah. And, find uh, out if my uncle's in heaven. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's this, uh, this really moving picture. I think it's from the October apparition, but, but I'm not positive about that of um, Jacinta being carried through the crowd by, it looks like he might be a, a police officer or maybe, or maybe just, maybe just a large man who's trying to help. And he's, he's got her up in his arms and she's laying her head down on him, you know, clearly kind of in some kind of distress or at least anxiety. And the crowd is coming after her and he's carrying her through, you know, they, they probably appreciated when that kind of attention was gone. Yeah. And so, and so uh, I mean, I think I would. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's good. Well, uh, Paul, so tell people where, where they can get your book and uh, where they can find out more. Yeah, they can get the book at Ignatius.com. And I'll say, I know uh, a lot of people have talked about using this book for uh, group studies, that kind of thing. Or, you know, if you're doing like a group viewing of the film and you want to have the book on hand for, for, uh, questions either, either to read it beforehand to prepare yourself or afterwards with questions or i mean if you're watching it because you know, it's in theaters and on demand if you're watching it on demand you can pause it and look up the answer to your question if you want you know so there are bulk discounts uh, available at ignatius.com i want to mention that um and you can also get it at uh, you know your local catholic bookstore and just about anywhere else <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Paul, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on and, and really sincerely. Thank you for, for, for this book. Uh, it's a great resource for people. Um, whether you already know a lot about Fatima or you're 
just a, a newcomer. Um, this is uh, this is really great, and it was great having you on. Um, and I, I hope that uh, you're well out there, and uh, look forward to being able to see you at a conference sometime soon. But who knows? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> All right. Well, God bless Paul, and uh, we'll uh, have now the closing prayer from uh, Bishop Strickland. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.